Welcome to the Pete Primo Show. It's episode 152, and we have Mike Weinberg here, and we're going to talk about his book, The First Time Manager Sales. But let me pay the bills first. Real quick, if you haven't bought my book, what are you waiting for? Sell a million, 100 tips to help furniture and mattress store owners sell another million dollars or more this year. And if you're just, if you think you're going to buy the book and get it in two days, and you're going to do a million in a week. You're not. So let's work on 2024, guys. Um, thank you for everyone that's bought the book. If you do buy the book, it's on Amazon. And you need a little help implementing something, just dial me up, 419-560-3169. I'll help you up to a half an hour free consultant call. And I'd like to thank my friends and sponsor, my friends at the Mattress Industry Network Group, Greg and Steve, you guys are amazing. I love what you do for the industry. I think we're over 2,200 strong in this group. If you are in the mattress industry, whether you're wholesale, retail, you own a store, you own a manufacturing facility, uh, you're a sales rep, you're an RSA, we want you in the group. Hit the scan code right there and join us in the group. You will learn how to network, how to advertise, how to merchandise. And if you feel right now that you're all alone, you don't have to be. Join the Mattress Industry Network group now and drink up all the knowledge that's in that group. It's a great group. I highly recommend that you join it and say hi to me when you get there. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm feeling a little underdressed compared to you, Mr. Mr. Uh, Primo. Usually I would be in my flannel shirt, but I have to run as soon as this is over. But I, I don't want you to get embarrassed, Mike, but you know I'm a huge fan. And and this whole thing started for me with this book, New Sales Simplified. If you're a sales rep and you haven't bought this book, buy this book. It is the best B2B sales prospecting book I've ever seen. And I read it religiously once a year because we all forget. And the best sales management book I've ever read for B2B salespeople, also by Mike Weinberg. And then Mike, he went crazy in this book. If you guys, this was beautiful. Mike got fed up and he just, he just let the sales industry have it. And I thought that was a great book, but I read this book, this one right here, guys. And if you, Manage people, you need to get this book. The first time manager sales. Guys, the only reason I got this book, I was too smart, too tenured, too this, too that. Guess what? I was wrong. I was so wrong. I needed this book, even though it says first time manager sales. I've been a manager for over 30, 40 years, and there were basics in this book that I was missing. And there were things that Mike put a certain way that kind of kicked me in the fanny, like every one of his books. I, I'm telling you guys, if you're watching this, you need to grab all of Mike's books. Grab this one first because it's his newest one. And it's just an unbelievably great book. I'm sorry, Mike. I had to do my fanboy thing there because I am probably your biggest fan. <laughs> And everyone's going, no, 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 I'm your biggest no, fan. No, stop. I, listen, I feel like I'm 
permanently and forever indebted to you for your fandom. And I just, I would tell your audience, please don't hold Pete's inflated view of me against me. Um, <laughs> you know, and I don't, Pete, you know me. I mean, I don't take this for granted. I didn't have some grand plan. You know, I didn't, this wasn't like on some vision board. I'd have a few best selling books and people would call me on another show and bring me into their company. It just kind of happened, you know, so I've carved out my little corners, the simple, authentic guy that tells the truth. And you have been ridiculously generous to me and supportive and I would do anything, uh, to help you. So just thank you for the, you know, the kind words and the inflated view and the generosity. And I'm pumped to talk life and sales leadership and sales with you today. So thanks for having me on. Anyone who's watching, if you have questions, uh, type them in and we will get to them. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? Jennifer is a great industry veteran who has just gotten on the road in the last year. Jennifer, just everything that Weinberg writes, just drink it up. Get to one of the seminars. He's the best. Yes, I feel the same about Pete. He is the best. Oh, Jennifer, Jennifer, thank you for your overly inflated view of me. <laughs> it's nice. We've got some friends from South Africa. Our friends from South Africa, thank you. I'm glad that we're a little earlier than normal. Usually it's 10 o'clock at night where you're at. Yeah. So what is this, eight guys? Something like that. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Well, Mike, I'm going to start off with this. There are a lot of counterintuitive things mm -hmm. that you have said in your books over the years. But there was one in particular. And it was advice that you did not want to take from your father. And I want you to unpack that for us and talk about it because I immediately, my gut reaction is BS, Weinberg's wrong. This will be the first time Weinberg's wrong. And I read it and then I went through my career mm. and I said, every time I formed a super strong relationship with one of my salespeople. And we actually became friends that transcended the job. We, we legit became friends and still are friends, even though our lives have taken us in different ways in different parts of the industry. We're still friends. And I kind of started to go back and say, so how much time did I really spend with them? And, you know, I gravitated towards them. I didn't do it on purpose. Like I would do it on purpose now after reading your book, but I did it just gut instinct. And, and thank you, Lord, for blessing me in so many ways mm -hmm. because I didn't know the names for all these things. I didn't know why. And I just want you to kind of go through that and unpack it a little bit for the people. Yeah, I love, I love that you're starting in chapter seven. Like what a great way to start an interview on a book. And I'll be transparent and, I'll, and we'll talk out of both sides of our mouths because we're going to talk about our best people and over-investing in them and even discriminating for them and for their benefit. And then we'll come back and we'll address the flip side of that coin, which is not ignoring underperformance. But my, we'll start with my dad's advice. You, you brought it up. When I first was getting into management, he said something to me that sounded ridiculous. He said, if you want to have more fun and you want to learn more, and if you want to drive more results, spend more time with your very best salespeople. And I looked at him like, are you on drugs? Like, 
what are you talking about? I'm bringing, I would, my, my first management job where I really struggled the first six months till I got my footing. And we'll come back to that later. I said, I'm being brought in here because it's a mess. This is a turnaround. Uh, they want me to put my fingerprints all over the culture and get these people selling. I, I, I was brought in after doing four years of coaching and consulting. And the CEO that brought me in was like, you got some heavy lifting to do here if we're going to create the kind of sales team we want. And my dad's like, trust me on this. Most of us in leadership spend too much time with our problem children and they get all of our best energy and attention and we don't invest what we could and should in our best people. And he said, Mike, listen to me. They're the ones that know what to do with your coaching and they're the ones that can find you the business when you really need it. And then the third benefit, which I figured out when I started taking his advice was I was able to learn the business quicker because the the top producers are willing to share things with you that your insecure, struggling sellers aren't. Your best people are the ones willing to let you take a look at what they're doing because they're not insecure. They'll take you into some of the tougher accounts. They'll show you where they're failing, right? They'll give you real feedback on what's happening. And my dad, my dad was right. And Pete, I'll, I'll just finish the story because it's it, the proof came decades later. It was probably 18 years later. He was right. And the more time I spent with my best people, the more fun I had, the more I learned and the more the business grew. And I got an engagement, I don't know, it was 2017 with a large data analytics company. Really cool organization. They had a couple hundred sales managers around the globe. And as they were preparing me to go travel the globe and lead uh, sales management improvement workshops, the head of America sat me down and she said to me, I want you to see some stats. We've taken our own medicine as a data analytics company and we've studied the time logs of our sales managers around the globe. And she said this to me, our very best sales leaders, okay, the ones who are managing our highest performing, right, the most successful sales teams, the managers of those highest performing teams spend two and a half times the amount of time with their best salespeople than the managers of underperforming teams spend with their best salespeople. And I'm like, voila, my dad was right. You know, all that anecdotal thing that he, that I've been observing for these years, they showed me on paper. So I'll, I'll yield there, but it was completely counterintuitive. And I will share that message with anyone who will listen. That I love that. And, and you know, it, it's funny how I went back and, and then I figured out that you were, your dad was absolutely correct. And you are absolutely correct. Uh, you know, sharing that great advice. I just want to unpack two things really, really quick about that. I've been a VP of sales twice and I run my own sales company. I know what it's like to have a check from one company and mm. that company, that owner looks at you and he says, I'm not happy. I need more sales results. If you, Mr. and Mrs. Sales Manager, want to move that needle, the fastest you can get with your top people. That's where your time is going to be best spent. So moving the needle the fastest is a big part of that. Yeah, Pete, let me jump in with one other thought on that because I, I used the, the word earlier and it's a dangerous word. I said, we need to discriminate. And I made the strongest case possible in that chapter that you should discriminate when you manage. Not, not on race or age or gender or religion. That's bad. That's wrong. That's illegal. We should discriminate based on performance. Yeah. Your best people have earned more support. They've earned you looking the other way 
when they're maybe not as compliant on some sales law or something the company wants them to do. Maybe they've earned skipping a meeting, right? Or they've earned extra support where you're doing something to free them up to maximize their production. Because here's the key. Like, we don't want to lose our A players because there are so few of them. I mean, it's, I'd rather lose a customer than lose an A, a performing salesperson because there are so few of them and certainly none of them are unemployed looking for a job. But we don't just want to keep them. We want to maximize their performance. And that means we need to ask them what they need. And we need to bend over backwards and throw extra support and do some things where we run interference and remove obstacles. And I am absolutely encouraging leaders to discriminate for your best people to keep them happy, but to help them drive even more results. And I I told the story in the chapter that I quoted one of my favorite sales leaders of all time, a guy named Mike Jeffrey, who's a vice president at Paychex. And he said his theory is sales managers need to become the bridge. We need to get to know our best people so well. And then we facilitate getting them from where they are to where they want to be, which which really necessitates you get to know them. You overinvest time, socially, meals, conversations, so that you understand what makes them tick and what they're trying to get out of life. And then you become the one who facilitates, you become the bridge to get them where they want to go. And not only will they never leave you in that case, but they'll run through walls for you because you have completely become their advocate. And that's the place we really want to get with our top producers. I love that. Make them run through walls. I've been there. I've been there. And, you know, in my business, I wrap six different lines. Hmm. And I got to tell you something. Those guys and gals who make me feel that way get a disproportionate amount of my time and my effort because I will run through walls through four people who care about me. They care about me and they care about my family. Mm-hmm. One of the best VPs of sales I ever had, Jim Bodino, God rest his soul. Jim, if you're still alive, I'm sorry I buried you, but... <laughs> Um, I, I'm not sure that he is. I've lost track of him. He ended every conversation like, how is Jenny and how is Christiana? Mm. And I would say, how is Donna? Because that's the kind of relationship that we had. And, uh, you know, he cared deeply about me as a person, so much so that we would talk about things that we're not supposed to talk about. We would talk about God. And he was very concerned about my faith. And he was he was instrumental in bringing me back to Jesus. Mm. So, my friend forever. Um, oh, you get emotional right here, man. This is a great message on, our, on Christmas week, right? Yeah, so. yeah, it is. Uh, you know, depending on who you are and what side of things you're on. And I tried to avoid those things, but it was there and I had to do it. I, I want to ask my, my VPs of sales and my sales managers out there, whether you're in retail or in your wholesale, how do you feel after you invest a lot of time with your worst salesperson? Usually you feel drained. Usually you're exhausted. Usually you're tired of the excuses. And how do you feel after you travel with your top producer? You're like, man. She's, mm. she's unreal. This guy's unbelievable. They're so positive. Man, I need to be more like this person. They're, they're, they're the width and breadth of their knowledge of our industry. It's greater than mine. I need, I went to school for free this last week when I traveled with this salesperson. And so 
I couldn't agree more with spend more time with your best people. And I want to get to this. Um, and it's, it, it, it's something that a lot of times we drag our feet on, Mike, and it, it's proactive coaching and it ties right into this, but it's kind of going the other way. It's, it's kind of going the other way where, you know, we don't want to address a lack of performance and we are not being as transparent as a sales leader as we should be uh, by not addressing the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is Mr. and Mrs. Salesperson, you're not making your numbers and we need to talk about it and we need to help you if you want help to make your numbers. So I know I just threw a bunch of stuff at you that you're going to just tear into. Yeah. So let's, let's set the stage, right? So you've, you've pivoted from chapter seven, which is fun to chapter eight, which is less fun. And the title of that chapter, and this is a truth is that it is sales management malpractice to ignore underperformance. And I will tell you, Pete, particularly over the last three or four years where we've had labor shortages and challenges and weird things with COVID and lockdown and virtual and remote. And we're trying to care for people and, you know, be create safe zones and all that other stuff. I get all of that period. New paragraph. Having said that comma sales is about results. And if you're the leader of the revenue engine of the sales team, the sales organization, you're on the hook to produce results and therefore your people need to feel that burden. And I will tell you that I'm regularly having conversations with sales managers across industries who, when I ask them, Hey, and I use the name Johnny in the book, right? In both of my sales manager books to describe the underperformer. And I see that they're having the regular accountability meeting that I prescribe and it's been going on for months and Johnny's not changing his behavior. They sit down, they look at the results, they look at the pipeline. If necessary, they look at the activity and month after month after month after month, Johnny is not getting better. And I have to look at the manager and say, this is becoming the definition of insanity. When are you going to change the conversation and actually be honest with Johnny that this is not on a healthy path and that we need to change this trajectory because the path we're on is not sustainable and we have to get this thing going the right direction? When are you going to actually confront Johnny? And I'll talk through in a minute. Uh, This is probably the most prescriptive I've ever been in any chapter of any book where I walk through the phases of beginning the coach up or coach out. In sales manager simplified, I call that remediate or replace. But the, the point is this. If you turn the other way and pretend that this person isn't underperforming and you don't change the dialogue and actually confront them with the facts, the data, not being a jerk, not demeaning, not embarrassing, not condemning the human, but looking at the data and saying, got to get this going in the right direction. If you ignore that, that's management malpractice. I mean, think about it. What message does it send to Johnny, the underperformer? What message does it send to the rest of the team that you're allowing Johnny to sit here on this team and bring down the average, potentially forcing you to put more burden on your top people? Um, Sometimes when I'm in a company in the mortgage industry or an insurance brokerage where producers are on 100% commission, I'll have an office manager or an owner say to me, Mike, what do, what do I care if Johnny's not producing? I'm not paying him anyway. And I'm like, excuse me, what about the cost? He's breathing your air. He, he's polluting the oxygen. He's taking up a desk. 
He's killing your culture. He's using your resources. And he's sucking the life out of the rest of the team where you're telling everybody it's okay to fail here, right? So just, just as a starting point, like that's my conversation. And I'll, I'll take it a step further. When I ask the manager, why aren't you confronting them? And I'll talk through this, what this conversation can look like in a second. But when I ask, why don't you tell Johnny the truth that we got to get this turned around? We can't stay on this trajectory for either of our sakes. What the managers typically tell me today is, well, Mike, I don't want to deal with it. You make, you don't, and this is what I hear. Mike, you don't understand. If I have that tough, con- I know you know where I'm going with this, Pete. You don't understand. If I really confront Johnny with the truth that he's failing, I mean, because, and that's my word, right? If you're not making your number, this sales is pass fail. Like you're failing. If I confront him with the fact that he's failing, he's not going to like that. And he might start looking for a job. To which my response after raising my eyebrows and cocking my head, I go, and (laughs) because he's failing. Like I, so, and I say, I'm not asking you to kick him out, but you need to confront him and help him and double up your coaching, double up your accountability and get commitments from him. And they're like, but Mike, you don't understand. If Johnny leaves, I've got the burden of recruiting because you know, I'm not doing my job. I haven't built the bench of candidates. So I got to start from scratch. And then I've got to bring on the new person once I get through all the torture of interviewing and onboarding. And then I've got to get him up to speed. And in the meantime, while the, the seat might be empty, if he quits, I've got to fill in the gap. And I'm like, do you realize what you're telling me? I said, well, you've abdicated your responsibility. This is complete mismanagement and malpractice. So you can't, you can't not address it. I'll, I'll pause there because I'm sure you've got a thought that I, I triggered. And then we could talk through what it looks like. But well, this is our job. This is part of being the leader. It's ironic that he says, I haven't done my job. You're not doing your job by not confronting them. I mean, that to to me, that is the the biggest point. And I've got my own Johnny story, but um, I want to keep going on this coach up, coach out and put a little finer uh, point on it. I had uh, a situation. Well, I don't want to go there. I'll tell you the whole story. You're so close to going there. I'm going to tell you why, Mike. Because I did, I made so many mistakes. This is almost going to be like a confessional. Okay. Um, and I wish I read your book in the middle of my latest Johnny episode. Okay. And I said to myself, Pete, you've made a bunch of mistakes up to now. You have an underperformer. You have to have a conversation and you have to commit to traveling with this person because you owe it to Johnny Mm. to exhaust every possibility. And I owe it to God and everything that I hold holy. I just to be a good human being, I, I have to pour myself in hundred percent. And then uh, the guarantee ran out and Johnny quit, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, uh, I, I built this whole thing so that if Johnny wasn't performing, Johnny would self-select out because it would just become too painful. But this coaching up and coaching out thing is huge. And well, uh, Pete, let me jump in. First of all, the story is, is perfect because it's illustrative of, of, of exactly what's going on. And I salute you for having the conversation. And I also salute you for a compensation plan that wasn't driving complacency, which is a whole other conversation. But let's just talk about our fiduciary responsibility to the company if we're in management not to turn away and turn a blind eye and hope that it fixes itself. 
Because here's, here's what I'm advocating. I'm not saying that you need to get HR involved and the lawyers and do a PIP. Because oftentimes when we do a PIP, a legal performance improvement plan, that feels like the legal cover your ass like formality that we're going to go through before we kick you out and we do this so we don't get sued. What I'm strongly advocating and like encouraging you to do as quickly as possible is when someone is struggling for a few months, you pivot, you put your foot down. And this is very natural after you're doing regular one-on-one accountability meetings where everybody knows where they stand. And after some period of months, right, you stop the definition of insanity and you stop suffering the fool gladly and you change the conversation with Johnny. But here's the one requirement. Only if Johnny is potentially a keeper. If he's a cancer in the organization and a negative Nelly and he's politicking and talking badly about the company and you behind your back and he's a disgruntled person, I don't want you spending extra time investing in him. You probably need to do what you need to do legally to get him terminated. But let's say Johnny, and you may have felt this way about the other person you were just talking about. You owed it to them. You may not have given them the love and the attention and the coaching and the accountability they needed. Maybe you inherited this person. And the previous leader, previous manager didn't invest at them at the level they needed. Or maybe it's someone you hired, potentially it was a mishire, but you need to give them the benefit of the doubt and the chance. And what I believe you do is you sit them down and I go as prescriptive as I've ever been in this chapter, in chapter eight of the first time manager sales. And I kind of outlined the conversation. And here, here's why I'm so strong. If the person's potential keeper, you have to do this because you're going to offer to double up your coaching and your accountability. And you're going to ask for a commitment back from the struggling salesperson for some finite season, maybe it's a couple months, where you're going to double up your coaching, you're going to double up your accountability, and you're going to ask for all kinds of commitments from the person who's struggling. At the end of that period, let's say it's two months, you now have your answer. It's crystal clear. Either A, with your extra attention and coaching and accountability and Johnny's commitment, at least temporarily, you've raised his performance to a level that's acceptable. You may have even turned around his entire career, and you've put him on a totally different path and trajectory. That's a win. Or B, after a couple months of over-investing and double accountability and getting commitments from Johnny, nothing changes. The pipeline doesn't grow. Results aren't there. And now you know, even with extra love, care, accountability, and ass-kicking, he can't do it. You've got to move on from Johnny and set him free to either succeed or fail somewhere else. But he can't, he can't do the job. And you can't ignore it. So my, my strongest advocacy is if you're not sure whether it's time to start coaching somebody up or out, do it. Because the end result's always good. Either you save them, at least temporarily, or you know for sure. But pretending it's not happening is not doing anything for anybody. And the key in that coach up or coach out has got to be mutual, right? You're going to overinvest. You're going to stick them in, you know, to the fire with their nose in the, in the results. And you're going to double your coaching because you're trying to save this person. But you might not be able to. Mike, you're the only guy that I know that could say extra love extra care and ass kicking and get the same sense. You know what my mentor, but let's compete. Let's go there for everyone who's listening. Like, yeah, my mentor who is a brilliant man, Donnie Williams. And I've written about him in almost every book. I mentioned him in one way. He would, he hired me into the greatest company I ever worked in in the 1990s was the vice president of sales. And later in the two thousands, we had a little company called Salesforce one. And for four years, we were consulting partners before I went back into take my hand in sales leadership and management before I'd started doing this on my own. And, and Donnie would tell everybody that sales management is the fine art. It's balancing, encouraging the heart, and kicking the ass. And he was spot on with that. And what I will tell you is the best sales cultures marry those two things. 
It is results-focused, scoreboards everywhere, rah-rah championship team, no slack, don't tolerate mediocrity, like we are winners. At the same time, it's supportive and caring and loving and it's filled with community and it's pro salespeople. And if you can get those two things together, you, you're unstoppable as a sales team. So that's why I, I was had no issue in bringing those two things together, encouraging the heart and kicking the ass. Because 25 years ago, that's what I was being mentored to understand. Well, I will tell you, and you already know this, we've both been blessed with great mentors. And, and anybody out there, if you're struggling and you don't have the right mentor, you can get a mentor a lot of different ways. If you're not blessed, you have one plopped onto you, go on LinkedIn and start following Mike Weinberg. Buy one of his books. Get in contact with him. Do those things. Um, reach out to other people. I mean, our life is so short. And before you know it, you're shaving one day and you're looking yeah. at an old man and you go, where did that 20-year-old guy go? Well, he's still in here. Time went super fast. And I'm really, really glad that I grabbed every advantage that was given to me and ran with it. Uh, and mm -hmm. Mike, I'm sure you are as well. Oh, Pete, that's so strong. And it's, it's, it's first of all, what a great time of year to stop and be grateful and Amen. also be reflective and a little introspective. And, and let me say something about the sales community and you know, there are times I make fun of LinkedIn because I think I think they're completely mismanaging the platform with what they've allowed to happen with automation and bots and fake stuff. And and there were a lot of sales people of the social selling movement that were way over the top in terms of what tech and tools and social could do for your sales effort. Having said that, it's an incredibly powerful tool. All the online communities are. And here's what I've observed over the 15 years or so I've been doing this in this form. People in the sales community, both in my peers, colleagues in the sales improvement industry, and then just regular salespeople and sales leaders, pretty generous group of people by nature. Yeah, we have egos. Yes, we drive hard. Yes, we want to win. Yes, we're competitive because those are the traits that make up a great salesperson. But I can't tell you the generosity and the love um, and the sacrifice I've, been, I've received from other people. And the in-depth relationships, Pete, like you, I just told you during the pre-recording, I am going to come see you this spring. I'm planning a road trip up to the Northeast to see some clients and some friends. I feel like we're friends and yet we've never been in the same room together. We are going to go break bread. We're going to hang out and talk about everything from faith to family to business and sit down and I can't wait for that. Like I'm making the effort to come see you. I have friends from Joe Tarulli in Charlotte, who I know is probably listening to this right now. I mean, who I met on Twitter and... LinkedIn and then he became a client and a friend. And I mean, all over the country, there are people if you're, you shouldn't be lonely if you're in sales, like reach out, follow people like Pete and myself and our colleagues. And if you are hanging out in the chats and talking, you're going to pick up relationships. What makes me so happy is when I see two people that I know that I'm the central point that made two other people in the sales community come together and they have their own relationship independent of me. Like yeah. that's the ultimate generosity. Like life is too short to live as a lone ranger. We were not built, and I'll say this: God did not build us to live alone. That's why we need community. And there are ways to get legitimate community that starts online. And there are really generous people who have platforms on which you can use to connect with others and get support and build some real friendships. So I'll just share that. That's awesome. So I'm going to go all the way to the back of the book. 
because there was something in there that well, you started spent- chapter seven. We're almost there. You know, it's, this is my thin. Where's the book? Let's be honest. If you're watching online, this is my thinnest book. It is, and you know why? Because it's been eight years since I wrote Sales Management Simplified when this came out, and I was able to cut a lot out and narrow it down to the bare essentials. Like, if you do what's in this book, you will thrive as a sales leader. I, that's why I was able to trim this down, and I'm convinced if you just do what's in here, you will win huge. And no insult to Sales Manager Simplified. Jeb Jeb Blunt called it the greatest book written in sales management, and I thank him for that. And it, it could still be true. But I've been in love with this little book because it gets down to brass tacks. And if you just do what's in here, you're going to win. It it is true, and I and I agree with uh, with Jeb, and I've said it many many times. But this idea of okay, I've just been promoted. I'm now a sales manager, and I want to go as fast as I can. And, and we have to coach them and get them to go. A different way. Okay. Sean, thank you for sending this in. Mike's book, New Sales Simplified book, is so great. I agree. The new sales driver, select targets, create and deploy weapons, plan and execute the attack. It's printed on my walls. It's printed on my heart and my brain, brother. <laughs> All right, John, Sean, Sean, send me an, a message. I'm going to send you a Sales Truth t-shirt, dude. That is really good. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, you made my day with that. So send me a send me a direct message and I will uh, get you a t-shirt. Guy Danes, what is more important, sales performance coaching or sales development? What is more important, sales performance coaching or sales development? Okay, I'm going to... Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. That's a great, great question. Mike's going to jump right in it. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about chapter three and chapter four since Pete started on chapter seven. I think our most important job is making sure our people do their job. So I would say that's accountability. That's sticking the results and the pipeline and when necessary activity under their nose and showing people where they stand, not to demean them, not to embarrass them, not to threaten them. Sales is about results. This is a non-emotional numbers data conversation. Where are you? What have you sold? Where do you rank on the team? Where are you against goal? Great. Spend a minute or two there because you can't change it. That's yesterday's news, but we need to look at it. And then we're going to spend time in the pipeline. What are you working on? What deals are materializing? And are you creating, advancing? Because those are the most important things we can focus on in terms of pipeline. What did you put into the pipe and what did you advance? And if necessary, if the pipeline's weak, then we we talk about activity. You've got to do accountability. And the reason chapter three is before chapter four is I think by maybe 1% performance coaching, to use your phrase, Mr. Danes, holding people accountable is 1% more important than the next part of our job, which is helping our people get better. Chapter three is your most important job is making sure they do their job. Chapter four is your next most important job is making sure they get better at their job, accountability, and then coaching. And if you hear anything from me in this hour conversation with my friend Pete, it's this. Managers need to separate the conversations. Accountability is distinct from coaching. And the managers that don't get the lift from the accountability meeting that I prescribe in chapter three and have been talking about for years was chapter 20 and sales manager simplified. The, the sales managers that don't get the lift from doing good accountabilities because instead of having a short 10 or 15 minute fo- meeting focused just on results and pipe and activity, they turn into this long strategy coaching development session and the salesperson forgot the point that they were actually on the hot seat and we were viewing their results. So Separate account accountability and coaching. 
I think they're both really important. They're the two highest value activities. I'll often tell sales managers when I'm doing a workshop, you have two levers. Aside from getting the right people on your team, because that's really important, and what the compensation plan is doing, your two levers to drive performance are accountability and coaching, and they go hand in hand. So there's there's the answer to that question that came in. All right, you were you were going to the end of the book and starting slowly, I think. So that's that's okay. I I, I have a note. Sean says you are a legend, Mike. Lots of love from London. Hey, we've got London here. We've got Oklahoma here, and we have South Africa. So Sean, who's your who's your Premier League team, Sean? I. I've got one son who's an Arsenal fan and one who's Liverpool, and they are at each other's throats. That they're that tight in the standings. Uh, I forget what you guys call standings. It's is another cool name for it that you use in uh, in the UK. But who's your premier team, Sean? Just curious. There's a little lag, so I'm going to okay. say this That's next great. He'll come question. Back. Yeah, Guy Danes, how did you manage sales mavericks? Thanks. That's great. That's a great question. I'll give a very short answer. It depends. Is the sales yeah. maverick a top producer that's earned the right to have some freedom or is the sales maverick someone who's underperforming? Because my answer will be night and day different. And that's all I'm going to say about that guy. <laughs> you know where I'm going to go. Tough. All right, Pete, you, you take back your show from these crazy guests. What do you got? No. So we were talking about slowing down to speed up. And I want you to go into that because I think it's super important. If somebody's watching this, who's a brand new sales manager and for that matter, an old sales manager that you're driving yourself crazy. You're not loving your job anymore. I think that this is great advice that Mike has in his book. And I think you need to hear it from him. Yeah, it's chapter 10 in the book. We're getting right near the end. And I interviewed uh, a couple really impressive sales leaders that I wanted their help on their perspective on this topic. One has been a sales leader forever. His name is Dennis Sorensen. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he's been a guest on my podcast a couple of times. Probably the most driven and strategic sales executive I've ever worked with. No client has stretched me, challenged me, pushed me harder than Dennis. We've become great friends. And he's mentored so many sales managers I wanted his take. And then I went to a guy named Drew Ellis, who's a new friend of mine in the last year. I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. First guy I ever had on my show that I didn't know personally or I hadn't worked with, but he was just so impressive. He's at SAP. And he had such a good startup as a new sales leader that I wanted him to share his takes. And I, I put those all in chapter 10 of the book. And here's the theme. If you want to speed up your ramp up as a sales manager, particularly if you're new, you need to slow down. And it's completely counterintuitive, like a lot of things in the book. And I tell you, Pete, some of my struggle in my first six, nine months as a sales manager, and I was also the senior executive. It was weird. I was a senior VP of sales of a couple hundred million dollar company. And then I was directly managing one of our sales teams because I, I had to do that just for budgetary reasons and it was help, helpful to learn the business. And I came in like guns ablazing, you know, hair on fire, under pressure from the CEO, fix this thing, Weinberg, you know what to do. And I overinserted myself and I didn't listen to everybody and I didn't go on. And Dennis Sorensen actually said this, when he takes a new job as an executive and he suggests the same thing for managers, he says, you need to go on a listening tour. And he said, let what you observe inform your plan and then what strategies you'll implement to turn things around. And I was too impatient to do that. In fact, Dennis actually quoted Jeff Bezos, but he flipped his quote around. He says, Bezos has this book that says, invent and then wander. And Dennis said, that's backwards. 
It's one thing if you're creating product. If it didn't, he goes, he goes, you, Dennis says, go wander and then invent your plan yeah. and let what your people are telling you, what you see in the market inform what you create. Dennis is brilliant. And I'll, I'll point uh, people to my own podcast. Go look at the couple episodes he was on because he's so powerful. Uh, Dennis Sorensen. And if you haven't connected with him on LinkedIn, I would encourage you to do that. Um, the, the general message is breathe, prepare yourself for the role. Uh, one of the things Drew Ellis shared was how much content he absorbed from sales management, simplified sales management, simplified to other great resources that he went into sales management with some frameworks ready to go and really understanding how to prioritize your time because he knew going into it from everything he had read and from his own mentors that sales management is overwhelming. You really lose a lot of freedom when you go from individual contributor to manager. It was something I was not prepared for. I was a top sales hunter in three different companies. I was a super successful consultant and coach. And then I took this job as a sales executive and a sales manager. And I never felt like I had less control of my time. I'd never felt people put more shit and work on my desk and bury me in crap. And everyone had an opinion about my job. I, when I called my dad in like total abject frustration with him, like, what am I doing wrong? I've never worked more and accomplished less. Everyone's given me work to do. They don't even understand what my priority should be. I don't get to spend any time working on the things that move the needle in terms of sales. Like it's hard to be in management. You, you give up your freedom. You go from winning on your own to have to winning through other, uh, to winning through other people. And it's a big shift. So the coaching in chapter 10 of the book is breathe, formulate a plan, but slow down and listen. You have lots of time. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And you will do better listening. And the, and the other piece that's not in that chapter, but it's, it's obviously, um, an important factor based on other things Pete and I have talked about. Spend a little extra time with the best people and get their take on what's happening. It'll give you a much better perspective to understand what you need to do, what you need to work on. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just take off on that point a little bit. Um, my first VP of sales job um, in B2B, I interviewed all the salespeople and I chronicled their complaints. And then I formulated a plan and then I informed the owner when I had my big sales meeting, it was going to get a little dramatic. If he wants to be in the room, that's great but you're going to have to let me finish because you're not going to like what I'm saying until I get to the very end. And Henry Goodman, God bless, the, bless his soul, he just got the big smile on his face and he said, okay, Pete. And I went in front of those salespeople and I said, what was, was, and what will be is up to us to create. Hmm. So as of right now, you can take a box of receipts, put it on my desk and tell me to fill out your expense report. I'll do it for you. This is going way overboard the other way, but I had to. Uh, if there's any paperwork that I ever ask you to do and you want to verbally give it to me and I'll put it down, I will do that for you. I used to get spend an hour... Uh, probably more like a day every month from my previous job, unpacking data. I did that for them. And then I provided it to them. Then we had conversations about it. 
And so when they walked out of that meeting, they knew one thing, that I worked for them and I was going to do everything in the world to get rid of all the noise and all of the things that got in the way of sales. But we were going to be successful and we were going to hold each other accountable for our results. And, and we did that. And that, that was a huge, you know, it's kind of funny because I made a note here to get to the front of the book. Um, and you started to do that on your own, which was very, very good. I may have done this once or twice, Pete. I may have yeah. been interviewed a few just, times. Just about once this. or twice. So there, there's two huge pieces um, that I think that if we don't cover it, we're, we're cheating people. And, and, and you said it like right out of the gate, it's the first or second chapter. Your old, your new job is not like your old job. And, you know, Mike, you've coached me to the, to, to, and you don't even know. Uh, but I have listened to your books no less than a hundred times. Ooh. No less. No I'm less. Sorry. So, I'm sorry you have that much of my voice in your. No, I love, I love your voice in my head. It prevents me from doing so many stupid things. It's not even funny. And it encourages me to do things that I need to do. Self, so our top hunters, our best producers are selfishly productive. They are. And that is not what you need to be a great sales manager. You have to win through your team. And then there's this other piece that I thought, my Lord, Mike, why didn't you write? Why weren't you born like 20 years ago? And I had read this book before I started because I was that hero. I was the guy putting the Superman cape on, flying down, saving everybody, and literally killing myself, killing, more importantly, killing my salesperson because I was neutering him. I, I was destroying him. And, you know, nothing is worse for a human being to say, here, I'm going to feed you. I don't believe you're good enough to feed yourself. I don't believe you're worth investing coaching time to teach you how to do these things. I'm just going to do them for you. It's like the worst insult we can give another human being. It's like, you're not good enough. And so I want you to unpack this. Don't be a hero because it's so important. I want everybody that's watching this to really get this. I didn't want you to stop. You were on a roll there, brother. <laughs> I, uh, you, you said it really well. Let me go back and address something you said at the beginning, and then we'll talk about the hero. Sure. It's a massive shift because you go from being responsible for one to being responsible for many. And you go from being selfish to having to be more selfless. And then the biggest transition for me was winning on my own versus winning through your people. And that last one in particular really is important when you make the transition from individual contributor to team leader to manager. And and I didn't get that all. It was a really, really a big pivot because you said it, selfishly productive. I'm yelling at salespeople all the time. Spend your time on what moves the needle. Ignore everybody else. You can be selfish. You can be a jerk. When I was the top producer in sales, whether I was on the back of my chair when I had a cube or once I earned an office on the door, I would put DND on the cell phone, S-E-L-L. Stay the heck away. Don't bother me with your operations crap and your customer. You go figure it out. I'm trying to make a living here and get us business. 
can't close your door and be unavailable when you're in management. Doesn't work. Same thing with ego. It's great. It's great when a salesperson's got a little bit of extra ego. It's, it's, it's kind of like Teflon for you. You got a little swagger. You know, you're good. As long as you're not arrogant or prima donna or rub customers the wrong way, ego's good in a salesperson. But high ego gets really old when you're the team leader, when you have to insert yourself in every situation, when you want the glory, when you crave the limelight, when you want to be on the stage getting the award. Because when you're the leader, you don't get to do that. You should be celebrating your people who are on the stage holding up the trophy. Your job should be holding your people accountable and developing them developing them so that they win better. And the biggest, I hate to say the biggest, but it could be the biggest danger in sales management. And this is existing managers, but especially new managers, Pete, and it's the path you went down. It's where we do our people's jobs instead of leading, instead of coaching, instead of holding them accountable. And the phrase I use is we play the hero of the sales team. Instead of focused on making heroes of our people, we're the hero. We do their job. You said we feed them, right? We catch their fish instead of teaching them to become proficient fishermen or fisherwomen, right? So we're doing their job and we do it and we give ourselves all kinds of excuses and it depends on our own personality and our own background, but we do it because we're under pressure. We do it because we want the limelight. We do it because we want to win. We do it because we're anal anal retentive perfectionistic control freaks. We do it because we want the, 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 be able to tell our boss, I jumped in and saved the day. It was going south, Mr. Vice President, but me as the manager, I got in there and I turned the whole thing around and we won the deal. And then the stupid executive, instead of questioning the manager, why'd you have to be a hero? Why weren't you coaching your people on the front end? You know, approves of the behavior. So it reinforces the wrong thing. Right. But when you play team hero, and this is where I want to go, you said it, it kills the culture. You neuter the salesperson. If you, if you are the one the customer's got to come to for the deal or negotiate, or you're the one running every sales call, or you don't let your person run the meeting because you got to step in and you want to run. Like, what are you doing? Like, is that developing the person? No, you're telling the customer you're going to deal with me. There's, the salesperson's just a pawn in this equation. And I will tell you some of the reason, and you started going down this path, Pete, that I see leaders play hero, and this is a dangerous one. It's because they know they really don't have the right talent on their team, right? There's a talent efficiency. The people in the roles can't really do the job successfully. So the manager, instead of doing the responsible thing, which would be beginning to coach up or coach out people that are not doing the job well, they just insert themselves in every situation and they have to be there. They're on every strategy session, every pre-call plan. They're going on all the meetings. They're writing proposals. They're doing the presentations. They're doing the negotiation. They're closing the deal. So the numbers are getting made, but that's not sustainable. That's not scalable. You're not, you can't do six people's jobs. And part of the reason some sales managers are working 60 or 70 hours a week and their people, their people are living with the feet on the desk in cruise control is because the manager is carrying all the burden because they don't do the accountability meeting chapter three, where they transfer the burden and chapter five, bad things happen when you do your salespeople's jobs. You're playing hero instead of turning your people into the heroes. It's not sustainable. It's not scalable. And that's why so many managers are on the edge of burnout and overwhelm. And I've had 55-year-old men cry in workshops saying, Mike, I can't do it anymore. 200 emails a day and everybody wants a piece of me and nonstop virtual meetings. And I don't have time to go out and coach. And then I got people that can't get the job done. And then I'm going in, jumping into everything. Leadership is not about doing. Leadership is about winning through your team. 
And if you never get that, like if there's one thing to take away from this conversation, you've got to get out of doing and get into leading, coaching, and holding people accountable. That's when you're multiplying yourself into your people. And that's where the joy and the satisfaction and the fun comes from when you're in management. Mike, 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 what are we going to do? We need another hour, but we have to wrap this up. I love this part of the book where you went through the actual um, questions that you ask in an interview situation. I thought it was beautiful. I'm trying to find it right now. Um, It was so good. It was next level stuff. Anyway, anybody who feels like you could use this book, there's so much in here that you would just absolutely love. It's it's literally a playbook on how to be a great sales manager. Jennifer, I worked for someone who liked to jump in when not needed to win the sale or was totally absent. There was no support. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sean, curious on Mike book, Mike's book, his thoughts on dealing with those underachieving salespeople, type C's, spend most of the time, spend most time right type. Sean, this type is the B. worst worded question ever typed. Check in, in on type A's, but type C's. And Sean, Mike knows what you're saying. So I'm going to let Mike answer the question. <laughs> and thank you for your question. Yeah, thanks for getting Sean. in there. Uh, I think what you're saying is how much time with A, B, and C players? I think that we're not talking about personality styles, but. A, B, and C players. We need to proactively develop everybody. That's that's an important job. That's chapter four is cycling through proactive developmental coaching. All of your people, your A players, your B players, and your C players. But what I would tell you is, I based on what I've written and what I've observed, you need to overinvest in your top people. Don't ignore them. They're the one that know, know what to do with your coaching and you don't want to lose them. And you have to confront underperformance quickly and begin that coach up or coach out process that Pete and I went into in great detail 30 minutes ago, where you don't ignore underperformance. You can't give them all your time, but you have to address it. So you can decide, can I get this person who's a C to a B level? And if you do, that's a huge victory as a sales leader. Or do you identify that they can't get any better and therefore you need to move them out and find someone else who can do the job? But there's no excuse. Your job, you have two jobs. How many times do I have to say it this way? You have to hold them accountable. Your number one job is making sure they do their job. And your number two job is helping them get better. And if you're not spending 75% of your time as a sales leader, either doing accountability or coaching, something is systemically broken in the organization. You've got to find out a way to carve out time to do those things because that's what's going to move the needle on culture and results. And that's what's going to make you win. And I, I hear this from almost everybody I've interviewed. It's in a couple of my podcast episodes and Drew Ellis said it really well in the chapter on speeding up your ramp up. If you check every little box as a sales manager and you go to all the little Zoom meetings they want you to and you sit on all the corporate stuff and you follow all the rules and you're a perfect corporate ambassador and you do every little thing they ask you to do so you're the most compliant sales leader ever, but at the end of the year, your team misses the number because you were so busy being corporate jockey and sitting in on meetings or getting to inbox zero or whatever the thing that distracted and diverted you from leading the team was. If your team, if you missed the number, which means you failed for the year, no one is going to give you a pass because you were a good corporate citizen and you attended all the Zoom meetings. So my message is do your job, lead the people. Sales is about results. 
That's why we're in sales. And don't ever forget that. Even if the goofballs around you or above you in your company try to distract and divert you and give you more work than you could possibly do, you need to manage up and push back and get aligned with your boss. Go, wait a second. Didn't we agree these things are my priorities because this is what's going to drive culture and results? And if I have to take on all these other projects and do all these things, when am I going to coach my people? When am I going to get in the field? When am I going to go on sales calls? When am I going to do deal strategy? When am I going to do my accountability meetings? That's what you need to do to drive the business forward. And like, if you don't hear the intensity and the intentionality in my voice, you're sleeping. Like, this is my wake up call. Like, you've got to do this stuff or you're not going to win and you're not going to have fun. And that's huge. You know, anybody who knows me, you know what I say. I say it all the time. Have fun and sell a million. I say it on purpose that way. Mm. It's not sell a million and have fun. You're not going to sell a million if you're not having fun. You have to have fun first. And sometimes, as my football coach, Lee Trestle, told me in college, men, we have to work so that we can have fun on Saturday. We have to work hard. And we have to work harder than the other team. Mike, this has been an absolute joy and a privilege. If somebody's watching this, and they, for some reason, they're living under a rock and they haven't seen you before, haven't heard you before. They want to get in touch with you, Mike. How do they do that? First of all, Pete, you are a dear friend and a gift to the sales community. Thank you for what you do and your support of the industry and of me and of the show. Thank you. This has been a total treat. I'm really easy to find MikeWeinberg.com, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. On the socials, it's Mike underscore Weinberg. And um, I'm just honestly really thrilled to be here. And I wish I wish you and all your listeners just a wonderful holiday season. If you celebrate Christmas, many blessings and much joy to you and your family. I am looking forward to shutting it down here uh, very shortly. And my uh, out-of-town kids are coming home on Saturday and can't wait to be together and awesome. celebrate the Lord's birth and Him coming to uh, to rescue us and uh, to set us free. And that's the greatest gift that uh, we could ever receive. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to do what I do. So thank you, sir. No, thank you, Mike. Everybody have fun and sell a million. Enjoy the holidays. And uh, we will see you soon. <laughs>